We're in Daniel chapter 6, if you'd open up your Bibles. We left off, we read the first 11 verses last week and looked at Daniel as a faithful man. Now, now we see what happens from this point on. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we just want to set our hearts right at this moment before you. And we pray that we could really learn the lessons from this very, very familiar story. I pray that it would become much more to us than a story we heard as a kid of Daniel in the lion's den. But, Lord, that we would glean some of the important lessons from it. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Question, how many of you have kids this morning? Raise your hand. Oh, quite a lot. How many used to be a kid? Raise your hand, of course. How many are still kids? If you have kids, you can relate to the idea of fairness. My son will often come to me and one of his favorite things is, Hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. Which usually means, I'm not getting my way. One of America's favorite watchwords is fair. It ought to be fair. Life ought to be fair. That didn't work out the way it should have been. I want it to be fair. I heard of a couple of fathers that were expectant fathers in the waiting room at a hospital waiting for their wives to deliver children. Nurse came out and came over to one man and said, Congratulations, sir. You're the father of a brand new baby daughter. And the other guy got up and said, That's not fair. I was here first. As if they could control it. But there is a thinking that we grow up with in this country. It goes like this. If I do good things, then good things will happen to me. If I do evil and bad things, then bad things will happen as a consequence. It's sort of logical karma. But we all know it doesn't work out that way. There have been plenty of situations where the tables have been turned and bad things happen to the best people. Daniel is a case in point. He could have said, wait a minute, why a lion's den? What did I do to deserve this? It's not fair, God. And so it becomes a very important story for any of those of us who follow the Lord with all of our hearts. As we said, it's a familiar story. You grew up hearing this story. You've taught your kids this story. But I hope that the familiarity won't overshadow the vital lessons that are in it. And the rest of this chapter, we saw last week that Daniel was a faithful man. He was faithful consistently. He was faithful on the job professionally. He was faithful under scrutiny. And he was faithful spiritually. The rest of this chapter gets to an important question. And that question is, what happens to those who are faithful? What can a faithful person expect to have happen to him? Will it be fair? Will it be frustrating? If I follow the Lord and I'm faithful in all of these areas, what can I expect to happen to me? Also, in this chapter, we get insight into how a child of God handles adversity. Or, I should say, should handle adversity. When things come our way that we don't like, when life isn't fair, how do we handle it? And we see that Daniel wasn't delivered out of the lion's den. He was delivered through it. He had to stay a night in it. I know we don't like that idea. We would rather pray to God and have Him airlift us from mountaintop to mountaintop. Forget the valley of the shadow of death nonsense. I'm not into that. 
Lord, I just want to be able to call on you anytime I'm in a dilemma, and would you just please send your spiritual helicopter, pick me up and take me to the next glorious, victorious experience? We see that doesn't always happen. As we remember, Daniel is not a young man. He is 87 years old in this chapter. In fact, chapter 6, chronologically, is the last portion of the book. The rest of the book deals with the prophetic visions that Daniel received during his lifetime. But chronologically, this is his last chapter. He's 87 years old. And as an old man, he gets sentenced to a lion's den. Something that would give most of us, especially 87-year-olds, a heart attack. And oftentimes we forget this fact. It was more dangerous for Daniel to spend all of those years surrounded by pagan influences in the Babylonian court than to spend one night in the lion's den. Oh, poor Daniel, he's in the lion's den. It's so dangerous. Hey, what about all those other years he spent with the satraps and all of the other characters who worship false gods? The temptation would be to compromise. But as we saw last week, Daniel was a faithful man. So this morning we want to look at four certainties for those who are faithful. First of all, persecution is inevitable. Persecution is inevitable. Now, go back to last week's message in your mind. Daniel's colleagues were envious. Daniel distinguished himself. He had an excellent spirit. He was promoted. And because he was faithful to God, faithful on the job, faithful under scrutiny throughout his lifetime, his colleagues became jealous and envious of him. And uh, to get a couple of the verses back in our minds, in verse 5, they conspired together. These men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. And they got him to sign this decree in verse 9. Then verse 10, When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with the windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since the early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, anytime somebody refers to you as that person, it's not a favorable kind of a reference. It's not this Daniel or our Daniel, but that Daniel. You've experienced that, haven't you, parents? Your wife will say, that son of yours means he hasn't been up to any good. That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, 
that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which the king established may be changed. They wanted to make sure it was signed into law. They wanted to make sure it could not be reversed. They wanted to make sure that Daniel would be thrown into the lion's den. It was all a setup. All because Daniel was faithful. Is that fair? It is not fair, but it is inevitable. Paul told young Timothy, very important words as this young guy was starting off in his ministry. He said, Timothy, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you're faithful to God, persecution is inevitable. You will not find favor with this world. Keep a marker here. Let's go to the New Testament Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 10 of Matthew, Jesus commissions his disciples to go out to preach the gospel. But notice the kind of terminology that Jesus uses to describe their mission. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, I think if I would have been a disciple, I would have said, Now, hold on a minute. I'm into the ministry and I want to follow you, but... Uh, Wolves don't like sheep, Lord. They gobble them up. Jesus said, Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now notice four areas of society that Jesus promises will be an irritant and a hassle to his followers. First of all, organized religion. Verse 17. But beware of men, for they will deliver you to the councils and scourge you in their synagogues. Do you know that organized religion has always been one of the greatest persecutors of the gospel? In many countries throughout history, organized religion has come against a true move of God because it upsets the organization. It upsets the structure. Jesus was hassled mostly by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the organized religion. Daniel had all of his colleagues who worshipped foreign gods persecute Daniel because they said the only way we can find an accusation is to find it concerning his God. Organized religion came against him. Notice the next verse in Matthew chapter 10. You'll be hassled by the government. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And boy, did this happen, didn't it? Between the 2nd and 4th century A.D., the Roman government consistently persecuted the early Christians, stoning them to death, putting them on a pole, pouring pitch on them, making them into living torches to burn at night in the gardens of Rome. Stories come of how they would take skinned animals, freshly skinned and wrap the skins around Christians, bind it up and let dogs and wolves eat them, being attracted by the scent of the dead animal. Eat them alive. Throughout history, government has persecuted the church. And in recent times, socialist governments have come against the preaching of the gospel. Now, on down it says, you will be brought before governors. In verse 19, when they deliver you up, don't worry about what you'll say or what you should speak. It will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but your Father who speaks in you. Then Jesus said, if organized religion doesn't get you, if the governments don't get you, your family will. Look at verse 21. Now brother will deliver a brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. In the early church, between the 2nd and 3rd century especially, stories come to us 
of family members betraying other family members to the councils, to the governments, who had become Christians, to show their allegiance to that government. They betrayed family members. Even to this day, in certain religious circles, in certain family circles, that family will have a funeral for the person who is converted to Christianity, saying, our son is now dead to us. He has left our religion. He has left the family. We bury him this day and we'll mention his name no more. Now, probably you haven't experienced that, but you have experienced persecution from family members, right? I'm speaking to probably a lot of people, a significant number right now, who know what it's like to have parents, brothers, sisters, husbands or wives not understand and even come against them when they became a Christian. The first question my parents asked me when I said, I'm a Christian. I've given my life to Jesus Christ. They said, why? Because they thought I'd always been one. They didn't understand. They didn't like what I had to share. They didn't like what I stood for. And some of you have experienced that as well. And then finally, in verse 22, Jesus said, By society in general will you be persecuted. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, why is that? Why can the Christian expect the inevitable consequence of persecution? Simply this, light and darkness don't get along. If you walk in the light and you live a faithful life in the midst of a dark world, you irritate their lifestyle. You bug them. You show them up. You know what it's like to have somebody turn on the light in your bedroom at 2 o'clock in the morning? Especially if the light's right above your head, you feel like you're being interrogated. They flip on the, hey, what's up? Get that light off. You'll do anything to get back into the darkness. You're accustomed to it. Your Christianity upsets and irritates their lifestyle. Listen to what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. You can expect this to happen if you're faithful. But a warning, Christian. If you're going to get persecuted, make sure it's for the right reason. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not for weirdness' sake. Make sure if you're going to be persecuted, it's not because you're a goofball, but it's because you're righteous and you live in the light. And there's a lot of people who do a lot of dumb things in the name of God. They'll even say, God led me to do this. They absolutely bring reproach to the true gospel because they do goofy things. And then when they get persecuted, they go, I'm being persecuted for righteousness sake. No, you're not. Jesus said, be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. There are many people who are as wise as a dove, which is not very wise. And they're as harmless as a serpent, which of course is not very harmless. They have a big bite, and they're obnoxious in their presentation, rather than truly righteous. But if you are like Daniel, you can expect the inevitable hassle of persecution. I've told you before about John Wesley, a man who was a fireball Methodist preacher. 
And one day he was riding his horse along the path, and it dawned on him. It had been three days, and he hadn't had any persecution. And it bugged him. He got off his horse, got on his knees, and started praying, God, have I backslidden? Have I offended you? I haven't been persecuted lately. It shocked him. Just then, somebody who recognized him from across the hedge said, That's that Methodist preacher. He bugs me. God took up a brick to throw it at him. The brick went by him. Wesley looked up into heaven and said, Thank God everything's okay. I still have thy presence, O God. He expected it. And he was persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now today, you can expect our society to start taking on new forms of persecution toward you. In fact, I'll make a prediction. In the next several years, one of the biggest enemies on the American public's list will be evangelical, fundamental, born-again Christians. You know, the right-wing radicals. That's how they see you. You know, one time, this country decided to establish a thing called the separation of church and state, which simply meant the government can't hassle you. You have the freedom to worship God according to the dictates of your heart and life and doctrine, and the government can't interfere. Now it means something very different. And though we say, in God we trust, and it's emboldened on the walls of both houses of Congress, and it's on our money, and though over the chief justice head in the Supreme Court are the Ten Commandments, it's outlawed in the schools. And though in 1777 the First Continental Congress brought in 20,000 Bibles to a young American republic, saying the Bible is the greatest textbook for the American patriot, now things have really changed. In fact, there's a new arm of the government called the EEOC. You've heard of them. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, a branch of the government which will set parameters as to what is fair and not fair, what will hassle people on the workplace, and what will help people in the workplace. These are the people who came up with sexual harassment laws, but they've come up with a new form of law called religious harassment. And what they've decided is that if on the job you do or say certain things that might not be according to what other people believe, they can get you for religious harassment. Now, I don't know if you saw Focus on the Family's newsletter this last couple weeks, but according to them, Senator Hank Brown's office in Colorado said, if these laws pass, this is what could be prohibited. This is what you can expect. Number one, wearing a cross around your neck, wrist, or any open visible part of your body will be prohibited. Secondly, displaying a picture of Christ on an office, desk, or wall. Number three, displaying a Bible or other religious books on a desk or otherwise making the same openly visible in a work area or lounge area. Number four, hosting Christmas, Hanukkah, Thanksgiving, or Easter celebrations or events that focus on Christ, God, or religious connotations. Number five, opening or closing uh, any company program, banquet, or event with a prayer. Six, witnessing the gospel, sharing your faith, and generally speaking to other employees about religion. Number seven, inviting a fellow employee to a synagogue, church, or place of worship. Hey, come to church with me Sunday. Hey man, religious, you're hassling me. Number eight, conversations about religion, religious groups, functions, and events. Number nine, singing or humming 
a religious song while at the copy machine. Number 10, giving a fellow employee a holiday card, a birthday card, a get-well card, a greeting card, or a plaque, which includes any religious reference. Number 11, praying while in the workplace. And number 12, he has many more on this list. I've only cited 12. 12, the display of calendars or thoughts for the day, books which make reference to the scriptures or religious sayings. Oh boy, your tax dollars at work. This form of the government is trying to pass this nonsense. What a difference from the way it used to be. And it's going to get more and more like that. Just listen to the way people are spinning Christians. We're becoming greater and greater in their eyes, the enemy. So persecution is inevitable. You can expect that. Secondly, trust is essential. Trust is essential. Verse 16, So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, will deliver you. Then a stone was brought, laid on the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring, and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now, how did Daniel react? Did he say, Hey God, this isn't fair! Well, it wasn't fair. He'd be right, wouldn't he? I mean, I've served you continually for many, many years. I've been in Babylon, and I've left a good witness with Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, now Darius. This is what I get for serving you? Well, I'm hanging it up. The verses that we have read so far don't tell us anything about Daniel's response, but we read about it last week in verse 10. Back in verse 10, you read that when Daniel knew the decree was signed and that it meant he would go to the lion's den, he opens his windows and he prays and he gives thanks. It seems that Daniel doesn't flinch by the commandment, by the decree, or by the consequences that follow the commandment and the decree. doesn't flinch. It seems that because he has this intimacy with God, he has this unswerving trust that, hey, God is sovereign. Daniel viewed God that way. I think Daniel, if you were to interview, Daniel, what do you think about God? He would say, God is my personal friend. God is my sovereign Lord. Nothing happens to Daniel that God, my Father, doesn't first approve. Paul in the book of Romans chapter 14 says, If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or die, we belong to God. That's a great philosophy of life, isn't it? You're going to die, right? Unless the Lord comes back in your lifetime, you're going to die. If we live, we live for God. If we die, we die for God. Either way, we belong to God. doesn't matter. I told you before about Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. He was tutored by the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, and 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and Revelation. Polycarp of Smyrna, in 156 A.D., was arrested because he was overtly proclaiming the Gospel and salvation through Jesus Christ. As he was tied to the stake, and his persecutors said, Polycarp, you have a chance. Just deny Jesus briefly, we'll let you go. Polycarp smiled and said, For 86 years, Jesus Christ has never denied me, and therefore I will not deny him now in this hour of temptation. And it cost him his life. He died, whether by life or by death. He trusted the Lord. 
Our ability to handle these difficult circumstances is directly proportional to our consistent relationship with Him. It's because Daniel's custom was praying and giving thanks. He always did it three times a day. He knew what the consequences would be. He still did it. And he had this settled trust in the Lord. If you can kneel before God consistently, you can stand before any man consistently. If you can kneel in reverence and fear only God, you will need not fear man. And so Daniel went to the lion's den. Now, the camera quickly pans off of Daniel, who's the main focus of the story, to the king in his palace. Look at verse 18, and I think you'll pick up on the contrast. Now the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also sleep went from him. He had a bad night. No stereo, no food, no sleep. You know what? Daniel got a better sleep in the lion's den than Darius did in the palace. It said when soon as Darius found out that Daniel had prayed, he felt bad about what he had done. He's feeling guilty at this point. You know, one of the greatest things about being a Christian is knowing you can put your head down at night on the pillow and you're free of guilt. It's washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's clean. You're a new person. Remember in the book of Acts, it says that Peter and James, some of the other apostles, were arrested. James had his head cut off. That's persecution. Peter was kept in prison to be executed the following day. Now, how would you have that night spent if you were in prison, knowing that tomorrow, you know, you're going to really use your head. It's going to be off your body. Would you sleep? Well, the text says in Acts chapter 12 that an angel came into the prison and Peter was sleeping, bound between two soldiers. In fact, the angel had to sort of nudge him. I imagine he was snoring. Knowing he's going to be executed, he laid his head down in prison that night and had a great sleep until he was interrupted by the angel who released him from prison. Delivered. Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, heard about a man in Rome, a common citizen, who owed a great debt, a lot of money to a debtor. But he also knew that this man who owed an incredible debt took his ease and slept well every night. It so impressed Caesar Augustus, he sought to purchase the bed that that man slept on. Of course, it did him no good, because it wasn't the bed, it was the conscience, and it was the heart that was plaguing Caesar Augustus. Listen to what God promises through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 26. You, Lord, will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is steadfast, because he trusts in you. You see, real peace comes from being able to acknowledge that I have peace with God. I'm not guilty before God. God has cleansed me. Whether I live or die, I'm going to be in the same place. I've lived my life for His glory. God knows what's best. So, we see that persecution is inevitable. Trust is essential. Number three, deliverance is possible. As we continue on, look in verse 19 now with me. Then the king rose. Very early in the morning, 
as you'd imagine from somebody who doesn't sleep well, and went in haste to the den of lions. Can you just picture him? What's happened to Daniel? I wonder if he's all right. When he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. He went, yes. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. The king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. No injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. Verse 24 is historical but gross nonetheless. The king gave the command that they... And they brought those men who accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, their wives. The lions overpowered them, broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Now deliverance is possible. God is always able to deliver any of his children in any circumstance. In fact, I would say God delivers us in every circumstance, not always from the circumstance, but through it. Sometimes he lets us have the full brunt of it. But God's always able. Paul Harvey. You've heard of him right on the radio? Paul Harvey. (laughs) Always has a little quip at the end of his broadcasts on a daily basis. And one time he spoke of a church called the West Side Baptist Church in Beatrice, Nebraska. And according to his story, he said the choir met at 7.30 every Wednesday night for choir practice. And they were always there a little bit before or exactly on time because practice started at 7.30 promptly. He said one night, however, March 1st to be exact, 1950, one by one all of the choir members were late. For some reason they all had a good excuse. The pianist overslept in her nap. The college sophomore had homework. The couple who usually takes a couple other couples, their car ran out of gas. All 18 choir members were late for choir practice. So they didn't make it at 7.30. Well, he said it was an interesting night because there was a gas leak and ignited by a furnace at exactly 7.30 p.m., the church blew up. And the furnace room was directly underneath the choir loft. And everybody came late only to see their church demolished, but they weren't in it. We look at that and we, we, we marvel at it. God is able to deliver. And perhaps some of you have stories. The time the car just missed you. The time you had the disease, but the doctor said, We can't find it. It was here last week. Where is it this week? But we also, at the same time, acknowledge those stories that are different. The deliverance is different. The car did strike. The disease did take its toll. God didn't deliver the way we think he should have. Again, we think of Peter in prison. Delivered. Oh, God's able. Hey, what about James? Where is James? Oh, his head is cut off. Oh, God, I guess didn't deliver him. Oh, I'd say God did deliver him. Don't worry about him. He's in heaven. 
He certainly didn't deliver him the way we would have liked God to deliver him, but he certainly did it. Now, why is it that God selects some to miraculously deliver and others? He says, no. Here's the answer. Ready? I don't know. It's the most honest answer I can give you. I don't know. I could come up with cute little stories saying, well, I guess God just wanted him in heaven more than he wanted him on earth. I don't know. Except it must somehow be linked to God's sovereign purpose in using a person on the earth. I think that when God sees that you have done what God has called you to do, why hang around? There are two witnesses in the book of Revelation that will come to the earth during the Great Tribulation period and be gospel catalysts for the 144,000 Jews. They can call fire down from heaven. They can turn water into blood. All sorts of miraculous signs. But in Revelation it says, when these two witnesses finished their testimony, the beast ascends out of the bottomless pit and has power to overcome them and kill them. But it was when they finished their testimony... See, you have a testimony that God has for you, a job, a ministry. God's not going to let you go till you're done with it. And when you're done with it, God says, why keep him around? He's finished. I've used him for my glory upon the earth. Now I'll reward him with heaven. Now there are times we disagree with God. Oh God, testimony wasn't over. And there are many questions with that that I can't answer. What about a child or somebody who's young and had so much to live for? or Somebody very involved in the Lord's work? I don't know. But God certainly has His sovereign purposes. And to seek to explain all of them, I think, would be trite at this point. But God is certainly able to deliver. And in verse 22, we get insight into the work of angels, don't we, in deliverance? I bet you've experienced uh, the work of angels, though you didn't know it. I married one, but that's all that I know about them. He said, My God sent His angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him, and also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. You know that angels are involved in your life? And some of you, the way you live, probably have teams of angels around you. The way you drive. Or what you drive. You just need, Lord, I need a new car. No, you don't. You just need a bunch more angels, the way you, the way you live. But the Bible says in Hebrews, angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to those of us who are heirs of salvation. If you say, well, I believe in God and the Bible, but I don't believe in angels. Well, you rip out every reference in the New Testament and Old Testament to angels, you'll have just a bunch of chapter headings left. 273 references to angels in the Scripture altogether. Think of this in the New Testament alone. Angels announce the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2. Angels tell the shepherds where to go, who are outside in Bethlehem in Luke chapter 2. In Jesus' life later on, they come to his temptation in the wilderness and comfort him as he's fasting, Matthew chapter 4. They came to the tomb and spoke to the women and the guys after the resurrection. They freed Peter and John from prison in Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 12. So they're very involved. And here's Daniel, a faithful man. Faithful to God, faithful in all the areas we saw last week. Persecution is inevitable. Trust is essential. Deliverance is possible, but it doesn't always happen. And the fourth and final certainty is in verse 25 to the end of the chapter, and that is influence is unmistakable. Influence is unmistakable. Then King Darius wrote, To all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell 
and all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Now, he's reacting. It's really not a smart policy to force anybody to worship anyone. But he's carried away with it, and he says everybody has to fear him. But notice what he says. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The power of a godly life is often underestimated by a lot of us. See, our question is fairness. It's not fair, man. I've served you for a long time. Man, I've been faithful to you. God, why are you letting this happen to me? It's not fair. But what is the impact of your life among the unbelievers who antagonize you? Isn't that the greater question for the glory of God? And I found that even the greatest antagonists and persecutors often have the greatest influence by that godly life. I think of Stephen being stoned to death outside of Jerusalem. And young Saul of Tarsus, this brash rabbi, witnesses the whole thing. But God uses that in his life in Acts chapter 9 to bring him to Christ. Or what about John the Baptist? Arrested by Herod, put into prison, because he mouthed off about Herod and his illicit relationship with his wife. But the text says in Mark chapter 6, Herod often called for John and heard him gladly. Well, the unmistakable influence of a godly life. And so it is with Daniel. Now, what about you? Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. That, that ought to cause your head to sort of lift up and go, man, that's a great, great description of a Christian. I'm the salt of the earth. What Jesus meant is you are put on this earth to greatly influence those who are around you. Think of it from a New Testament perspective. Salt was used before refrigerators or freezers. They'd rub salt into the meat to keep it from rotting When all the Christians are removed from this earth, which is what the world would love to see, and they'll have it one day, you'll watch the judgment of God come fast and hard upon this earth as the salt is removed. The meat will be left to rot and corrupt. The only restraining influence will someday be gone, and the earth will be corrupted. Until then, we're an influence. Salt is also sprinkled upon food to give it taste, flavor. Life is pretty dull and sipid and tasteless when you don't have any spiritual direction. People ask questions like, what am I here for? What good is life? The Christian is the salt of the earth. People see your life. You've got purpose and direction and meaning. You add flavor, hopefully. But also, what is the result of salt when you eat food with salt on it? You get thirsty. Salt creates a thirst. And hopefully, Christian, you should be creating a thirst. The way you live. People should look at you and say, I'm thirsty for what you have. Oswald Chambers, some of you have read his book, My Utmost for His Highest, said, The radiating influence from one person rightly related to God is incalculable. He may not say much, but you feel the difference. That's Daniel's life. He's faithful. What happened? Was it fair? No, persecution is inevitable. But in the midst of it, trust in God is essential. 
Deliverance is possible, but it might not always happen. It won't happen the way you predict. But influence, what you leave behind, is unmistakable. That's the greater question. It's the greater issue. Let me close with one of Peter Marshall's favorite stories. Peter Marshall, who's in heaven now, at one time was the chaplain for the United States Senate. One of his favorite stories was called The Keeper of the Spring. It was about an old man who lived high up in the mountains atop an Austrian village. He was hired by the village to pick leaves, twigs, debris, slime out of the crevices, crags, and pools up in the mountains that fed the spring that formed the lake in the center of this town. That was his job, the keeper of the spring. Because he worked so arduously, so hard, in silence up there in the mountains. The spring that fed the lake, and the lake itself was pristine, clear, beautiful. It attracted vacationers for years from all over Europe, all over the world. Hotels went up, businesses went up. And then a new city council took over, who one night at a business meeting, they were looking over their paper, they noticed the budget, that a large chunk of money was being salaried to this Keeper of the spring. Who's this keeper of the spring? For all we know, there's this old guy living up there collecting a paycheck. He's doing us no good. Let's fire him. And they all unanimously canned him. Thought, oh, we're doing a great job. Cutting the fat, saving the budget. He was fired. A few weeks went by. Nothing happened. They saw no changes. But it turned to early autumn. Leaves began to fall. Twigs began to break off. About a week later, somebody noticed a yellowish-brownish tint to that once pristine, clear lake in the center of that village. Weeks later, it was a little browner yet. Leaves collected. Slime and foam was now on the side of that lake. A stench went up over that lake, and disease encroached the village. Soon the city council saw the error of their ways and remedied the mistake. Quick, find that keeper of the spring. Hire him back. And soon that polluted pool became clear once again. What the keeper of the spring was to that Austrian village, the Christian is to be to this world. Despised, perhaps. Unseen, sometimes. But a great influence nonetheless. And so our challenge, be faithful. It will cost you. And so trust is absolutely an imperative. God may deliver you in it. He may not. But the greater issue is that he'll use your life to impact that society. So, Father, we conclude by just thanking you for that possibility of being salt, light, and keepers of the spring. We pray, Father, that our light would so shine among men that people would see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven, as Jesus predicted. Lord, we recognize, Jesus said, we'd be hated by all men for your name's sake. I pray that we would proudly bear the brunt of persecution because the world didn't get along with you when you entered it. Who are we to think they're going to get along and love us? So as we see the headlines and the laws being passed, may we rejoice that it's another reflection of the persecution for the cause of Christ. May we never be ashamed of the gospel. May we continue to be the preserving influence. And I pray, Father, that through our lives, men, women like Darius would come to that same conclusion, that God is alive and at work. Father, I pray for those this morning who don't know Jesus Christ. 
As life is insipid, tasteless, flat, without purpose and meaning that Jesus gives to it, I pray that this morning your Holy Spirit would just prick their consciences, their hearts, and cause them to deliver their hearts to you. Say, Lord, take my life. Become my Lord. And then, Lord, keep them faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just name, amen.